You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, James Bond in Never Say Never to Her Majesty's Secret Service. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick them between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and yes, Mr. Bond, I expect you to talk, because it's a podcast. I'm Adam Thomas, and you've had your shakes. Yes, and uh, Adam, we are not alone here. We have a guest with us today, a guest who's been on several episodes of the show, one, one of our favorites, uh, Mr. Casey Gerard. Casey, welcome, and nice talks with the bow and everything. No one's going to see it, but I'm glad you dressed up for the recording. Yeah, I look really nice. I like to think I'd be the first red-headed James Bond. The, actually, guys, this is the announcement. I hate to break it to you right now, but I figured it'd be good for content and airplay. Uh, I'm actually replacing Daniel Craig after No Time to Die. Exactly what everyone wanted. <laughs> yep, I yep. agreed to do it in 2019, and we're going to announce after the movie comes out, theoretically, next week. Uh, but also maybe never. Yeah, that's a, that's a fairly good point to mention, is that while we're doing uh, James Bond this week, uh, as our topic uh, for every single topic, every episode, we cover a good and a bad feature. And so James Bond is the topic in alleged closeness to No Time to Die. Admittingly, this will be coming out uh, the last week of September 2021. Uh, so it's a bit before the alleged current release date of October 8th. But as of September 24th at 9.25 p.m. Eastern Standard Time when we're recording this, it's still supposed to come out on that date. That might have changed by the time this has come out. Might have been changed by the time you finish that sentence <laughs> that's true i do have a bond, james bond push notification on my phone just in case <laughs> of course you do casey <laughs> obviously anyone who's listened to the show before especially episodes you've done would know uh you like uh older things you're an old soul as the kids <laughs> might say um and so along with say a star trek which you've been on or um, we talked about, like, the AFI classic movies list, or we talked about Casablanca on that episode. You also are a pretty big fan of Mr. James Bond, one of the longest-running franchises in cinematic history. I guess say, I like pretty ladies shooting guns in 60s fashion in 60s sets. Ignoring the fact that my favorite Bond isn't from the 60s, but we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that for sure. But just a few tidbits, if you were unaware. Uh, James Bond's been running for 26 films ever since Dr. No came out in 1962. So that's 59 years, making it the second longest running franchise behind only Godzilla. And in terms of box office gross, the, all the Bond movies have grossed a total of $7 billion, which is the third most successful franchise of all time, only beaten by uh, Star Wars at number two and then the MCU currently at number one. So uh, it's pretty successful. It's been especially like an interesting generational thing. I know like with this and Doctor Who, they're both like franchises that people always say like, oh, this is my particular 
Bond. This is my particular thing that I jumped into the series on. Casey, who was that for you? And is that person also your favorite Bond? It is, uh, and it is still probably to me, still Roger Moore. Uh, what it was was uh, my best friend growing up spent a year in Scotland and came back with ja- with knowledge of what James Bond and Monty Python were. As a result, every boy in that fifth grade class was quoting James Bond and Monty Python. Uh, but he sat me down and he had, I think it was The Man with the Golden Gun was the first one he showed me because we were also big Star Wars fans. And he was like, oh, this is Count Dooku. <laughs> and I I expected him to look like Count Dooku and not super young 70s Christopher Lee. Then I like borrowed a few of the tapes that he got in Europe from him. And I watched like Goldfinger on VHS. I watched Die Another Day. And slowly I stopped watching the ones that he gave me and started like seeking them out on my own. That was around the time I realized AMC would do Bond marathons all the flipping time. Like if they didn't weren't doing one, Spike TV was doing one. So I just gradually watched pretty much all of them, except oddly enough, one uh, that we're going to be covering tonight that I only watched half of at that age. Oh, interesting. Well, we'll talk all about um, both these particular films specifically. But Adam, uh, what about you? Who was your Bond? Who made you sort of jump into it? And sort of what is James Bond to you? What Where do you think that kind of character works the best in terms of his long history? First Bond I saw was Sean Connery. Uh, my dad is a huge uh, Sean Connery fan, and especially of the Sean Connery Bonds. So that was easily the first ones I saw. Uh, I want to say the first one I saw was Goldfinger, um, and then it kind of just kept going from there. Bond, to me, really represents sort of the staying power of really, you know, not necessarily, how do I put this, non-nerdy fandom. You know, where it's it's kept alive by the fans, but not in a typical way like, you know, people would think about Star Wars fans or Star Trek fans or things like that. Like you said, it's kind of cool, man, that something that's run as long as it has and everybody knows what it is and everybody does have a particular favorite for different reasons. Uh, it's just Bond has kind of always been there my whole life. It apparently, probably always will be. So it's just kind of comforting anytime a James Bond movie comes on or comes out. You're like, ah, this old hat. And it, it's really sort of, uh, it's it's special in that way. Yeah, I have an interesting history with Bond where I've talked many times about how my dad introduced me to a lot of different like things I love about movies. Um, but Bond was always sort of the one that I always attributed to be more of his thing. Because keep in mind, like before I ever saw any Bond movie, I saw like all the spoofs. Like I knew Austin Powers like front and back before I ever saw, like, one frame of an actual James Bond movie. Or any of the different parodies that would come out, like The Simpsons, with, like, the Hank Scorpio episode, which is one of the best episodes of that show, um, where they would just directly parody. Like, I was aware of Bond as, like, a a thing, but I never really watched a Bond movie until I distinctly remember we went to a beach house one summer, and it was, unfortunately, on a day that it rained all day. So we were like, oh, what do we do? Well, this place has a VHS, and the only VHS they had was the Bond film, The World Is Not Enough, the Pierce Brosnan classic um, that I watched, and I was just like, after hearing so long, my dad talking about how much he loved James Bond, I was just like, is this what you're fucking talking about? This is dumb and stupid. I fucking hate this. This is bad. I'm not bothering with these movies, which happened for a while until um, 2006 came along, and Casino Royale was the big talk, especially amongst even kids I knew, which is like, oh, it was such a big thing. And I remember seeing it um, because I couldn't get into Borat. 
because I was a kid. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, man, I'm missing out on Borat. I, how do I get my wife jokes? How will I get that? Um, so I was just like, fine, I'll see you the dumb Bond movie. And um, that blew me right out of my fucking chair. It was such a phenomenon. Like, oh, my God, this is great. This feels like it's like a really sleek, modern, but emotionally driven like action movies this is so dope. Hey, I'm, I'm so on board with this. So it was around the time of, I would say, the 50th anniversary when Skyfall came out. I really dug into like all of the bonds. Like I went through, and this was, keep in mind, while I was around in like college at this point. And what I find so interesting about Bond is just you can track sort of the history of popular culture through every single Bond, uh, for better and for worse. It's interesting, especially where, like, the Connery era was a lot more about, like, kind of setting trends, and then by the time you get to the Moore era, it's more of just, like, let's keep up with trends, and that never quite stops. Some end up still making great movies despite that, and then some try and catch up with Star Wars and make Moonraker. So, it can go either way. And I think that's what makes even the worst Bonds fascinating. Would you maybe agree with that, Casey, as a fan? Very much so. Like, when it came to uh, coming up with ones I would recommend avoiding, I was still having trouble uh, coming up with something where I could not recommend in any way, shape, or form. Like, Peak Behind the Curtain, my least favorite Bond movie is Die Another Day. I still think there are some very fascinating things about that movie, even though it's a train wreck of a movie. Same with The World Is Not Enough. Like, you're talking about how dumb it was. I agree that one movie is blah as fuck, but I still really like Robert Carlyle in that movie. And I'll let, I'm blanking on her name, but she played Electric King. And the fact that that movie has two villains that kind of, like, balance it out. And also Denise Richards as a nuclear physicist. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's also there in Christmas came early that year. No, uh, no, it's I thought Christmas only came once a year. Oh, once a year. That's true. I'm sorry I forgot that great line. That Oscar Wilde witty line that everyone loves. Um, but but yeah, so it, there's definitely a, a wide swath of different uh, Bond experiences on this particular episode. And we're covering two very interesting films in the franchise that we chose at the end of our last episode. Um, I had the two good picks that we picked randomly at the end of the last episode. Adam had the two bad ones. And our good pick is uh, not one starring one of the more popular or uh, prolific Bonds uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And then uh, the bad pick that we have is Never Say Never Again, which is technically a James Bond movie as much as it legally can be, as we will explain. <laughs> so two very interesting entries in the franchise in general. So let's go ahead and get started with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> avalanche of action. Bigger. Better. Different. It's got to be when he's around. My name's Bond. James Bond. The new Bond. Suppose I were to kill you for a thrill. The different 007. Oh. The different bond from the same statement. So, Honor Majesty's Secret Service came out December 18th, 1969, and is the sixth Bond film um, following the big Connery run that started with Dr. No and ended with uh, You Only Live Twice. 
And uh, this one was kind of infamous at the time because it is the first time that Bond was recast after Connery left uh, the first time following uh, You Only Live Twice. And so they searched for a new guy and they found him in the form of a Mr. George Lazenby who before this was mostly like a male model and had been in some like TV advertisements. And this was still decided to be like, okay, we're going to get him to be in this movie and potentially be a recurring Bond, though this would be his only adventure as Mr. Bond. Um, and it was directed by Peter Hunt, who had been like an editor and second unit director on a lot of the movies prior to this and was not as successful as the other Bonds. It made $82 million at the time, but that was perceived to be the lowest grossing one at that point and was sort of seen as like a, oh, disastrous one-off. They got Sean Connery back for Diamonds Are Forever right after this, and it was kind of brushed off to the side for a while. But with time, uh, Honor Magic Secret Service has aged like a fine wine in the in the eyes of many a Bond fan. And Casey, I believe you're one of those people. I am. I was always kind of into into this movie because it's it's different, but different in a way that really works for me. And as time has gone on, it has gone from going, oh, I actually kind of like that one, to fuck yeah, I think this is my favorite one of the franchise. I don't love George Lazenby. He's my least favorite Bond, but I still think he does a pretty good job. But Diana Rigg is far and away my favorite Bond girl to a point where it's not even particularly close. I think Telly Savalas is the best Blofeld. I love the setting. I love the set pieces. I... I I, I was so happy when I saw that this was going to be the movie we were covering. Yeah, I knew you were a fan, so I was definitely curious. And it's one I think that is worth defending. Adam, what about you? What do you think, uh, basically, of Honor Majesty's Secret Service? Uh, it's, if not the, it's top five James Bond, for sure. Um, I can't agree enough that Diana Rigg is uh, inarguably the best Bond girl on screen. Um, she's capable, she's tough, she's beautiful, she's just, she's perfect. Um, and Telly Savalas is not necessarily, I don't know if he's my favorite Blofeld. If he's not, he's neck and neck for number one with Pleasance. I just think Pleasance plays it so terrifying. But Savalas has such charm to him. But uh, yeah, I, I think this movie's great, dude. I love the theme, the, the Louis Armstrong theme, where, you know, there's no fucking lyrics. I This is the best novel is for James Bond. I think pretty much universally thought that. And it's just, it's filled with great characters. I love the way it ends. I love everything about it. And Lazenby, no, he, he is probably the worst Bond, but not by a lot. I mean, he's still perfectly capable in this, in my opinion. He's just, you know, he's new. But uh, yeah, this movie's uh, damn near a masterpiece as far as James Bond goes. Um, yeah, a bit of a correction that there is the Louis Armstrong song, uh, We Have All the Time in the World, which does have lyrics. But then there's the main theme composed by John Barry that does not, that plays over the opening credits. So uh, before you all write in about somebody getting fired for that blunder. Yeah, right. And I can also, I can say why it doesn't have uh, any lyrics. It's because he said, how the fuck do you make a song with a chorus on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Fair point. Very weird, awkward title <laughs> to turn into a song, especially. I, I think I avoided this for so long because it was sort of like the black sheep because it had that reputation, and it's like, oh, George Lazenby, whoever the hell this is. I'll say that, like, with Lazenby, especially revisiting this time, I don't think he necessarily fits as well in the more traditional Bond, like, set pieces, maybe? You can see they rely a lot more on the stunt guys um, in those sequences and not showing his face as much. But I think what makes him so interesting in this is he has a lot more vulnerability in a way that, like, I don't think Connery would have been able to portray at this point in his career. 
I think if he had, you know, done this particular movie, I don't think he would have quite worked at, like, really being honest and vulnerable with Diana Rigg as much as Lazenby is. Because Lazenby has a bit more of, like, this boyish charm that I think at the same time makes him more perceptible to, like, the way Bond's a bit more rash in this movie. It's a weird thing where he has, like, the height angle because he's literally, like, 6'2". I think he's... Isn't he the tallest Bond? I want to say Roger Moore is taller, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm fairly certain he's the tallest. Right, but, at, like, he's this big lumbering guy who, like, has, like, this great, interesting, like, athleticism to him. But at the same time, his best moments in this movie really aren't those as much as, like, him being able to be, like, either honest with her, or even when I love him being dressed up as, like, the college, like, professor guy, <laughs> when he goes to fucking Blofeld's hideout, he's like, so he's like, oh, Christ, yes, yeah, so I'm going to be investigating your lineage. <laughs> it's such a, like, funny bit, to a point where, like, I wouldn't have minded seeing Lazenby continue in this role, in particular, like, kind of carry on that vulnerability in a world where the Tracy Bond sort of tragedy kind of like actually carry through a bit further than it did in other movies where they reference some things but they never really it's a weird thing where it's one of the few continuity things but it's also kind of like put under the rug at this as many times as it is actually referenced elsewhere i believe at one point and you know this might be just a random thing i read on imdb that got deleted later that week i believe at one point diamonds are forever was supposed to be a lot more about him getting back at her but because of both the mixed reception to this and the fact that they didn't necessarily want to make the movie as heavy as they did. And indeed, Diamonds Are Forever is a lot of things, but it's not a heavy movie. They pretty much just decided, okay, we will make that just the cold open, and then from there, it can just be another Bond adventure. Yeah, but at the same time, like, I miss this kind of vulnerability in Bonds. Like, I think Daniel Craig definitely carried that a lot more, especially in Casino Royale. It owes a lot of debts to this particular movie. But I don't think, unfortunately, like, after this point, just really dropping that for, like, the, the more era, which isn't my favorite era of Bond. It's a lot more silly, and I don't think has as interesting, like, emotional honesty that I think this particular movie has. And I think that's so fascinating for especially a guy who was always put up as just like, oh, I'm masculine man who especially in the connery era had committed a lot of like you know sexist and worse things to like his bond girls at various different points i like the fact that this movie has a few instances of that like earlier on like particularly when tracy shows up in his uh hotel room but after that point where like he he slaps her once and then he completely lets his guard down especially at that particular point, he doesn't actually take her, she takes him and leaves him in the hotel room, which I love that twist on. It immediately just sets up like, Tracy isn't your regular Bond girl. She has complete independence and fierceness. She's not a Bond girl, she's a Bond woman. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. That's why I think she's the strongest of all of the Bond in quotes girls. Uh, It's just she's her complete own sort of self-reliant character that is completely capable of sort of flipping the script on the James Bond archetype and, and things like that. Like she's in control of her own sort of emotions, her own body and everything. She's not just where, you know, she meets James Bond and turns to, you know, a puddle when he's around. Like she's, she knows what she's doing. She's playing her hand and playing it well. Yeah. I mean, and it's just such a wonderful performance from Diana Rigg as well. She's sexy. She's beautiful. But at the same time, she's just got such an air of confidence about her and, and a toughness and a, also a fragility that you don't see in really most of the Bond girls uh, up to this point, and I'd argue very few since. 
my favorite shot in probably any Bond movie is after he escapes this, which I also love the escape in this. Uh, he's at the ice rink. He thinks he's about to get recaptured and someone skates up to him and you just see ankles in some skate shoes and he just uh, pans up and it's going up Diana Rigg and she looks down at him. And at that moment, I buy 100% why Bond would want to marry her. Like she is the one who's going to be able to get him out of this. And with everything you'd seen leading up to that, I fucking, my God, I'm sorry. I'm getting goosebumps talking about right now in a way that I don't think the franchise ever gives me again. Well, especially with like the music underneath being like that one Christmas song and the kids are saying like, he needs love right as her face pops up is like a great like little detail in there. But I also like the fact that like they're able to do that despite the fact that like in the middle of this, like because Tracy disappears after like between their big love montage and that sequence you're referring to. She disappears, and Bond does have his way with a couple women um, who are totally into him um, at the the ski chalet place. I was going to say, a couple? He basically bangs all of Blowfield's harem. Right, right. He just doesn't give a shit. Right. Wow. And I was worried revisiting this, just like, oh, is this going to make the stuff later feel insincere? It's like, no, this is like his last bout as like traditional James Bond, because he realizes after that point, like, oh, I'm not too different from, like, Blofeld, like, completely manipulating these women after a certain point. And then when he ends up getting back to Tracy, just like, no, this is, like, someone who actually has her own independence to her, who I love at the same time. Like, this is somebody who I should be with. I shouldn't be this philanderer anymore. That was, like, his last sort of attempt at being the traditional Bond. And then him finally, like, realizing, it's like, no, there was something great under my nose this whole time. Why would I ever do this again? It's just so good, guys. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I definitely agree. No, I definitely agree. Not exactly what it is, but it feels like it's almost his ceremonious, like, bachelor party in Vegas where there's no rules before he settles down and gets married. Like, it's his last hurrah. 100%. And 100%, you believe that Diana Rigg would be the one to sort of bring James Bond down a peg. Like, it totally makes sense. One thing I do want to bring up, too, like, we, yes, Blofeld, great. But also, in a lot of Bond movies, you get sort of the side villains and, and sort of the henchmen and all that. In most Bond movies, you know, you got Oddjob, you got, you know, Jaws, all of them. Dude, Draco and Irma are really strong sort of side villains in this. They're really, really good. Irma's fucking underrated when it comes to henchmen. Like, Incredibly she never... Yeah, she never gets brought up, but she is simultaneously both a brains and a brawn in that. In that she, like, she's the one who kills Tracy, actually. Like, I'm yeah. a little let down she doesn't show up again. Yeah, I, I think particularly, like, the way that she kind of carries herself around all the uh, people in Blofeld's little harem. Just, like, pouring them around. Just like, oh, no, we can't do this, we can't do that. She has this, like, term taskmaster type mentality uh, that really works. And especially when, like, things go awry, it really works. Or even with the... Um, the Draco character. I love the bit where Bond's, like, uh, number two tries to go on the ski chalet, and it's just like, it's been closed for two weeks. No one can come. Nobody can come. <laughs> and just immediately, like, locks the door and shit. Just like, damn, this is intimidating. The most intimidating way somebody could be like, no, this is off limits. No ride for you. Go ski over there. <laughs> it, it is really well directed by um Peter Hunt. It, it, it's really, really well done. And you know, I didn't realize about rewatching this. I'm like, oh, Inception. Oh, yep. Tenant. Oh, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> like, there's a lot in here, man. And so I did a little research. Turns out, yeah, he is a huge fan of this movie. And I totally get why. And it's just, it's shot so well. And the action beats are great. 
I don't understand. I guess it's got to be the Lazenby thing. That's the only reason I can think of why this movie is like sort of looked down upon. Like in hindsight, it has to just be the Lazenby thing. I mean, what else could it possibly be? I think that's why people outright dismiss it. It's just that Lazenby doesn't really like enter the canon. He's always kind of like skipped over, especially with like being bored between two Connery movies doesn't really help that. Um, by the way, I slight digression uh, that we we slightly got something wrong. Draco is not actually the henchman that we're referring to. That's uh, Grunther, I believe, is that henchman because Draco is Tracy's father. Uh, the Gabriel Ferretti. Oh character, right, sorry. Which yeah, yeah, no, sh- you're right, you're right, you're right. Just a shout out though, I love the relationship that he has with like both Bond and Tracy. Where like Tracy is sort of like the troublemaker daughter who he like constantly tries to like, oh, I need to quell her somehow. You, a man, you can do that. You can quell my like abrasive daughter or whatever. And then ultimately, like how we see that Tracy and him do not have a good relationship. Like the bit where she's like, "Daddy, tell him the thing that you were gonna say, or I'm never gonna see you again." I'll completely disappear from your life. Just, it's so cold the way Diana Rigg delivers it. But at the same time, their relationship eventually becomes a lot more close. There is a bit more of just like, is there anything about like him loving you the way that you love him? Just like, well, in time, there might be something like that. I, I love those little bits back and forth with them. It's this interesting thing where he's trying to keep the Bond status quo going by just like, you can tame my daughter, basically. I'll give you a million dollar dowry for this and then it just eventually had like completely melts away and bonds even just like i'm not taking that money i love this woman i don't need that money to be happy with her another thing in this movie is a very tiny thing that always gives me a little bit goosebumps but it's in that scene where she's like that may come too and he says no i'll talk with him tomorrow and she goes no whatever happens there will be no regrets i'm like oh Oh god, this movie does such a brilliant job of like foreshadowing the tragedy, which we'll, we'll go into a lot more by the end of this discussion, but just some other things. One, talk about Blofeld again. I love Telly Savalas' Blofeld. I agree. I think he is my favorite, because no offense to Pleasant, so I think does a great job portraying like the iconic version of Blofeld. The thing is, his Blofeld is definitely just more of like the typical Bond villain sitting off in a chair distantly, not really doing anything, his henchmen do the work. Fucking Telesavalis' Blofeld gets his hands dirty. Like, he is going along with that awesome ski chase, which I love. Probably my favorite action sequence in this whole movie. It's just that giant ski chase that's going on where Bond, like, ends up losing one of his skis and everything. And Telesavalis is so determined, like, I'm gonna shoot this motherfucker dead. Or even later on, when they're chasing against him and Tracy, and the fucking avalanche she causes? Like, he uses Mother Nature to fucking kill Bond. Just like, damn, that dude doesn't give a fuck. (laughs) They only skipped over Pleasance uh, because they were like, oh, Pleasance isn't really very much of a physical actor. They wanted someone who can do action scenes. Telly's Valis did war movies. Yeah, Kojak's fucking unhinged in this movie, man. He just has such a different air about him than really any other Bond villains and really, obviously, any other Blofeld. He's, you know, A, it helps that, you know, he's not British, he's an American. And his accent and sort of the swagger he keeps with him and everything. It's just, it's unlike any other Bond villain. And yet, again, it sort of gets downgraded a lot. Like a lot of people, like I, I, he's not considered the worst. That's, um, well, I would say Christoph Waltz, but uh, I can't remember. The Charles Gray? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. No neck from Rocky Horror Picture Show, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah well, you know, but, um, <laughs> but I think Tully Savalas is, fucking solid in this movie and you're right thomas like he's like i'm just gonna do it my fucking self then and it's really cool to see sort of you know the archetypical bond sort of master of this shadow organization 
actually getting dirty and getting in the mud and, and getting his hands sort of bloody at the same time as his, you know, sort of henchmen. It, it's really cool. And again, I don't think you've really seen it since. Well, at the same time, what I like about it is that he has that kind of like burly tenacity, but also when he is like sitting around doing the traditional like Bond exposition stuff, like monologuing to Bond or later on when he's got like Tracy captured, he has that same kind of swagger that works for a Bond villain. I love particularly like him and Tracy going off each other, which is like, I can make you a countess, but I'm already a countess. <laughs> just completely shrugging off any of his advances, just like so fucking good. All that stuff is so great and leads to also Tracy being capable as a Bond girl where she's actually like fighting all like and doing a pretty damn good job of like hitting his hands. Particularly the bit where like she gets that fucking bottle and like cracks it and has like the jagged edges right in that dude's face. Like Tracy don't fuck around either. What I especially love is that final thing that he's ransoming for his end goal isn't like hundreds of millions of dollars or a country or anything like that. He's saying, hey, give me fucking amnesty. I did a lot of shit. I kind of want to retire now, though. So I'll tell you what, you let me retire, I won't cause COVID. <laughs> right? It's, it's, rewatching it, that was wild. Yeah, because he literally is yeah. like, oh, causing an epidemic. He's just like, oh, right. What I also like is that it's kind of like a recurring thing throughout this movie is that kind of like wanting to hang things up and wanting to kind of retire. Like, that's a thing, obviously, with Blofeld, but also even Bond's relationship with MI6 is a lot more just like... Uh, this tenacity, especially, like, I think this is my favorite use of the other Bond-adjacent characters, like, particularly Bernard Lee as M, where he's just like, I'm fucking tired of your bullshit, dude. Like, you're just going around gallivanting being fucking James Bond. You're causing me so many fucking headaches, and I'm tired of it. Like, particularly when the resignation he puts in is just like, uh, oh, can you come over to my office? Thanks. Accepted. Get the fuck out of here. Just like, damn. He is not taking your shit anymore, dude. It's very corny, but I really love the scene where he's emptying out his desk and it's just things from other movies. Yes, and even, like, he looks at the picture of the queen just like, I'm sorry, mom, and <laughs> drinks the rest of the flask. It's so good. I think this movie has such an interesting kind of weird finality to it that makes me think, like, this is, feels definitely like the end of Bond's relevance is sort of, like, the one making the trends, like I kind of referenced earlier. Like, the end of the 60s kind of feels like it's a, it's a movie acknowledging kind of like the Bond golden era is probably ending at this point. We don't know what happens next, but this feels like it's Bond saying goodbye to his kind of like huge dominance as the biggest action progenitor, which is also weird given there's so many good action sequences we haven't really talked about. Like, everything with like Bond escaping from like that one room with all the gears over to the ski chalet or, like I mentioned, like, the whole skiing thing is dope. What is everybody's favorite action sequence in this case? It is the ski sequence. Uh, I know I've said it gives me goosebumps several times, but the third thing in this movie that also just gives me goosebumps is uh, when the main opening credits theme starts playing as he's escaping and you just see all the guys in orange jumpsuits skiing out. I just get so into it at that moment, and I just love watching that bit all the way, like, right up through him being found by a Diana Rig. Yeah, especially shout out to, like, that whole stuff team the way that they were like jumping around places like the only times it doesn't work is like clearly like very much of its time kind of like shots of them like with the rear screen projection um which i think only really hurts for like say a lazenby who i don't think is just used to it because he hadn't acted before versus like when Sabalos like you get the head on shot just like oh he's, he's so pissed off he's like his <laughs> teeth are grating at you but Adam what's your favorite action sequence here I mean absolutely agree it's the ski sequence it's so iconic and it's been emulated and sort of uh paid tribute to in several several 
uh, different films and even television shows. It, it's just, it's so good. It's so tight. Great stunt team. And yes, when the theme starts to play during the escape, it, it, me too. I'm like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, it, it's just, it's great. It's so tight and just well done well just to shout out a couple other one little bits one i really like the siege at the end of uh, the blofeld compound especially like him chasing after blofeld or even like when bond enters and he's like fucking flying down the the fucking like icy ramp with like the gun directly in his face just like shooting down and him like i said chasing blofeld around and uh, getting to eventually the big bobsled chase i love that bobsled chase so much where there's so much of this like tension and you really feel especially when bond like jumps out of it and then has to like run around and like jump onto blofeld's thing and when blofeld is like fucking putting his head so close to the icy side just like oh fuck there's so much tension that i don't really get out of like a lot of bond like action sequences particularly later on there because of like the whole thematics of this feeling like bond wanting to retire there's so much more tension in any of these action scenes which is like is this like the last one what the fuck are they gonna do it's like wow it's just like i it's so stunning that like especially this movie gets so cast aside despite having so many of like the great action sequences and character beats and so much awesome stuff it's i agree that like if you did not watch this movie because just like oh is that Sean Connery one of the big ones get over yourself watch this movie it's so great let's say this wasn't the first time that they had swapped out Bond let's say that George Lazenby was the third person coming in with it and people were already see the idea that James Bond doesn't need to just be this one guy I don't think that anyone would have had a problem with it this would have been the cool start to a new Bond the way GoldenEye is or the way Casino Royale is yeah, I agree. I think that's why this got so much more reconsideration post Moore and Dalton and Brosnan like being a thing. I think that's why like people are able to appreciate because it it's like, oh, Bond isn't just Connery, and it can have different flavors. Even though this one still works within that Connery era for all the reasons we're talking about, though it does take the biggest risk, which we should talk about here. Um, this is the movie where Bond marries Tracy at the very end after a wonderful also scene in the barn where they like basically he proposes to her off the cuff I, I also love how that sequence goes but there's the big wedding scene which i think is really tremendous i, I love the uses of like q and m there or even lois maxwell when he she's saying goodbye to fucking bond at that point they're like cute back and forth they've had for years just like is crystallized so perfectly in that ending where she just realizes like you're gone you're you're the man who i wanted and you're just gone he like throws her the top hat and she has like these tears in her eyes it's so beautiful i love that moment a lot yeah well what i appreciate about that one is like in the conray era it was kind of a mutual flirtation but you don't really have sense in especially in like for much with love or something like that around there that she's actually expecting that they're going to get together or even maybe thinking it. it's almost like here's the cute guy at work the as superstar called it once the work flirt for me and that's it for her and that's like kind of mutual for them and then at this moment right here is the first time the franchise is saying maybe this wasn't all that was to her and it almost like puts money penny in kind of a sadder light maybe this wasn't just work for her. maybe this is someone she really wanted that's really how they played money penny from here on out until arguably the daniel craig era where she's much more like, no, no, I, I see what you're doing. I don't really like being on the field. I I shot you once. We're good. Yeah, I to be fair, I think they hit their apex with that. With which is the bond that has like one of the last scenes where Brosnan won, and their version of Money Penny like has a virtual reality simulation where she. Oh, fucks die bond. another day. That's die another day. Yep, terrible. One of the worst things I've ever seen. That particular bit. <laughs> it's like so like that. cringy. 
You don't like that that bit where she enters the Matrix? Nope, I don't. I'm not a big fan of that. But but anyway, anyway. So back when Honor Magic Secret Service, like you know, uh, Bond rejects the dowry and he's off with Tracy, and it's this beautiful sort of like moment where it it's this weird version of like the ending of any Bond movie where like oh we're off secluded and I'm with my lover and we're about to like close the blinds so we can make love again in the middle of this like escape pod or whatever the fuck but this is like oh we're two people genuinely in love and we want to spend the rest of our lives together and then fucking blofeld drives that fucking car and irma has the gun and shoots and we think oh they just shot at the car and there's gonna be a big chase sequence tracy's fucking dead in that car and it's one of the saddest things i've ever seen a major awesome action movie just after all this like great awesome escape is entertainment it ends on this really tragic, genuinely affecting note and gives Lazenby his best performance bit of just saying like, oh, she just needs a rest. Don't worry, we have all the time in the world. It's so fucking good and it makes me cry every time. Mm-hmm. And, then the, and then the score kicks right back in. <laughs> yep, I such a problem with that. We're just like all this sweet, sad like version of the we have all the time in the world then ba-da, ba-da, diamonds are forever. <laughs> I'm okay with it because, and I know it's just the same recording, but going off of the We Have All the Time World to that music cue, it feels oddly more chaotic and more angry than it has ever had before. Had Diamonds Are Forever essentially been proto-licensed to kill or just bond on a vendetta spree, I think that that music sting would have worked a lot better as a here's what's in, you're in for next. Perhaps, perhaps. But uh, Adam, how do you feel about that uh, crushing blow of an ending? I mean, it's exactly what that is. I mean, it is a crushing blow and it shows sort of a vulnerability to bond that, you know, we don't see quite a bit. And I love the fact that, you know, he cries, you know, and I, I know that was a big thing that during the production, they're like, you know, Bond, James Bond doesn't cry and all this stuff, but he did it anyways. And it, it, it totally solidifies that sort of this ultra male sort of, you know, chauvinist character has been taken down a notch and he's just a vulnerable man now. Like he's just a normal vulnerable guy who was loved and ultimately horribly lost. It is a downer of an ending, but it's also a perfect ending. And to the point to where I wish we could have seen where this version of Bond would have went. And I, like we said earlier, and I, I really hate that they negated it. Although then when you get Casino Royale, they spend three movies, you know, explaining how hurt he is because of Vesper. So it's like, eh, eh. I just, I really, I really love the ending of this movie. The, the whole Daniel Craig thing is a completely different discussion, but I think at the same time, with what I love about this particular ending is that it just has this note of finality in a way that you could almost just, like, never watch another Bond movie after this. You could just stop here. You'd still be losing out on a lot of great movies that followed afterward, but at the same it feels like it is, like, sort of the great ending note for this particular character to go out on even with like casino royale which i love what they do with the vesper lynn character and their whole dynamic back and forth at the same time that is a bit more trying to use it as like a way to explain like how bond became the bond that we would know later as opposed to this is the bond that we know ultimately coming to a horribly sad conclusion about just like no matter what you think you're like you've spent this whole movie trying to get away from this life that you've had for so long and unfortunately that life comes back. That life, You don't immediately just, like, get to go off into the sunset after being a super spy that has, like, toppled governments and destroyed, like, giant fucking volcano layers and all this other shit. You don't get to have that happy ending, unfortunately. So you're basically 
doomed to continue the Bond series. Honestly, you could interpret, like, any Bond movie after this in this sort of weird continuity from here to, like, the end of Brosnan. It's just, like, a sad, endless hell that Bond has to go through. You know, where he also, like, faces off against black exploitation guys and the villain blows up like a balloon. Or um, he dresses up as a clown and hides an alligator mask. Or um, Die Another Day happens. <laughs> you know, just all this silly stuff. There's still this weird tragedy overlaying of just, like, well, he had Tracy, and it just completely dissipated. I'm now just picturing, like, it's a almost, like, good place style. Like, this is his weird fucked up afterlife is just diamonds are forever through die another day. And just saying, maybe this will be my, this will be it. Oh, no. Sean Bean is back. <laughs> <laughs> I fought off warlords and generals, and now Jonathan Price has a news channel. <laughs> just inside, he's just like, let me die. I can't keep living this life anymore. <laughs> oh, but we're getting pretty far away from Honor Magic Secret Service, which we've talked about quite a lot, and we do have another movie we have to talk about. But uh, let's just do some quick final thoughts then on Honor Magic Secret Service. AC, go ahead. Uh, it's your favorite Bond movie. Do you have anything else to add beyond that? I think I said my case. I love that it's one of the few Bond movies where Bond actually has an arc of himself and character development, but usually when that happens, there's also a struggle with the villains or side characters not being as interesting. They are all interesting all the way through this. I love all the henchmen. I love the plan. I love the music. I love the art decoration. I love the style. I love Diana Riggs so much. I love Telly Savalas so much. I love that this is not like just going for gritty it still can be silly but in very fun ways it's terrifically exciting even though until very recently this was the longest bond movie it does not feel it in the slightest you can tell that the director had been an editor i, I love that that this is the movie i got to talk about honor match secret service for life bro <laughs> <laughs> great uh just a, a great final note to end that there um adam your final thoughts on honor majesty secret service i mean it's fucking dope dude you know it, it, unfortunately it's one of the most underappreciated underseen of the james bond sort of catalog and and i think that's uh really a shame because this deserves to be talked about amongst the best of them it's a super solid fucking movie it, it's populated by great rich characters villains bond girls bond himself it treats Bond in a way that has not been seen up until this point, and it's kind of refreshing for that. Uh, it, it kind of makes you you want for what could have come afterwards, but the fact that you even just get this is enough. It's a, it's just a really, really solid, not only James Bond movie, but just a spy movie, action movie, thriller movie, drama movie, however you want to classify it. It kind of hits all those beats, and it, it works, you know, at top level on all of them it's just incredibly enjoyable yeah i mean i echo everything that's been said and also would just second that like it's this great example of like it's a movie that has so much of this like emotional impact and so many like great like moments of actually like evolving bond and all these other like great side characters in this new direction that is so like unique to the series at this particular point but also it's a really fun action movie like there's especially a lot of like hand-to-hand -hand combat scenes where they do like the fast motion thing that i'm not as huge a fan of in the connery era and here it just feels like it's this weird version of, like oh this bond is like this massive huge lumbering guy who is so quick that like he'll hit you in the face and you won't even know what fucking happened 
it's a great way of evolving that style of Bond in a way that I agree I wish had happened especially into the 70s where I think it kind of hits a doldrum point despite some pretty solid movies in there um, I would still say yeah this is definitely in a top five uh, there's a few others I would say I prefer a bit more we might talk about some of those uh, when we get to our double reduce section in a bit but yeah it's a tremendous movie that I would still say des- deserves so much more than its reputation but uh, before we get to the next film here is a promo for an ESO so you can queue up right after ours do you like podcasts? Then you're gonna hate Thunder Talk. Tasteless subject matter. Mature humor. Contempt for our co-hosts. Unapologetic social views. Edgy music. And total irreverence for the nerd junk we love. Are all reasons why no one. No one. No one should listen to Thunder Talk. Find us on the ESO Network. And all podcasting platforms. Or don't. Whatever. And now let's get into Never Say Never Again. Sean Connery is James Bond, Agent 007. My name is Bond. Oh, you're Mr. Bond. I believe I'm having you in half an hour. Oh, splendid. Your room or mine. You're obviously well equipped. Thank you, James. So are you. Good to see you, Mr. Bond. Things have been awfully dull around here. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Sean Connery is Ian Fleming's James Bond in Never Say Never Again. So uh, Never Say Never Again um, is an interesting beast because it's one of the two unofficial non-Eon, which is the production company that made most of the Bond movies, along with uh, a different one we'll also, I think, talk about in a bit with our double reduce section. The huge issue with this is it's a remake of the film uh, Thunderball that Connery originally did, and Connery is here again, only that movie was made in 1965, and this is 1983, because there was a huge like legal controversy with uh, this producer, Kevin McClory, Uh, Kevin McClory basically had worked with Ian Fleming on a screenplay that never got made where they invented a lot of the concepts of like Spectre and Blofeld and all this stuff. And then he made the novel uh, Thunderball, which had a lot of those recurring elements. So he ended up suing Ian Fleming for a lot of money um, until they eventually agreed like, okay, as a settlement, you can be the only main producer on Thunderball and you'll also be able to produce your own version of Thunderball 10 years after this. And he was like, okay, sure, I'll take that. So Thunderball happens, and then from the mid-70s until 1983, he was in production on Never Say Never Again. And this lawsuit that we're referring to is also the main reason why you didn't see uh, Spectre and Blofeld again from this point until the recent 2015 film Spectre. Um, And that's kind of a bummer, especially considering, despite how much he legally fought to have that sort of used in this movie, Spectre's like a non-entity in this fucking movie. (laughs) I like that you said low budget. The metaphor I've been using is this feels like an Italian knockoff of a famous movie, like an unlicensed Italian sequel. In fairness, it's better shot and edited than most of those, but there's just, there's something that almost copyright infringement feeling about this. It's odd. 
Well, yeah, especially because they, they can use, like, Sean Connery and they can use a couple of the characters, but they can't use, like, any of the other cast members, and also they can't use any of the big iconic things like the Bond theme or the the fucking uh, gun barrel. You would figure that would be a reason for, like, oh, you could actually just do something entirely different. You can make an interesting different Bond film, but instead they just went for what you're talking about, which is, like, a weird Italian knockoff, or even the way I describe this movie is it's like a canon movie without the fun wackiness. It's just, like, sapped of life, but has that same low production value. Despite also, by the way, $36 million budget, $10 million more than Octopussy, the Eon movie that came out around the same year, which is baffling. A Star Wars A New Hope's budget differed between this and Octopussy? The thing is, Octopussy, not a great movie. Among the worst. Uh, But even then, bad production values still looks better than this. This is... Like, even besides, like I said, Irving Kirshner, you know, notedly good director and uh, pretty good at moving cameras, pretty good at editing. But it seems like he really slummed on this. There's a lot of shots that are just very boring to look at. Like, the opening shot of this movie, you see the 007 fade in, and then it just looks like the opening shot of Suicide Squad. Just an ugly shot of a bayou. Yes, but Adam, this was your choice. And uh, are you happy with your life decisions? <laughs> I mean, no, but yes. And the fact that I, I honestly feel that I picked the worst James Bond movie. And for a lot of the reasons you said, Thomas, you fuck. Like, I actually took notes. And a lot of it that I said was knowing that there's not going to be a sequel, knowing that there's not going to be a follow-up to this version of Bond, they they could have just not been so beholden to, you know, sort of the albatross that is the Bond franchise and done something great. It could have been a Bond out of time movie. It could have been how the Cold War came about because of stuff like people like a James Bond and things and how they affected it and all that stuff. There could have been so much cool stuff really play more into that. He's aging now and he's almost like a man out of time and all this stuff. But no, they just gave you a really shitty pale imitation of a James Bond movie. And the opening, you know, not even to, to get into the 007 logo, which is so dumb and such a cheap sort of attempt to give you a new version of the gun barrel. But it's this whole generic action bit set to this mellow ass song and it doesn't work. I mean, at all. And the fact of the matter is that that's how they're going to try to bring you into the movie. And there's no care even given to make it that exciting. It's just kind of bland from beginning to end. Yeah. um, Shout out to Lanny Hall and the composer, Michael Lagrand, which, for the record, I think he's a really great, like, French, like, jazz. He's amazing. Music. No, yes. he's a really good composer. He can do romance and drama and things like that. Clearly, action, not his not his thing, dude. No, Umbrellas of Sherberg doesn't translate to Never Say Never again, shockingly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, shockingly. But yeah, the whole, the whole fucking, the whole score feels off. Like, every bit of it, it, it doesn't work. I will say, Sean Connery in overalls might be the best thing I've ever seen. If not the <laughs> if not if not the horse jump might be the second best thing I've ever seen. That's also uh, the weird thing too, is that it feels so much of like, it's Connery bond at this point. He's like 52, which to be fair is younger than uh, Roger Moore is at this point in octopus. He's like 56, but like it's him in the middle of like an old story. He did done differently to one really relate to the trends of the time. And also especially to kind of emulate this, a lot of the stylistic stuff of like a Roger Moore movie in a way, we're just like, this is like a disastrous mishmash that never gels whatsoever. You get the feeling like Sean Connery, yeah, he's there because he got like a 
$3 million paycheck or whatever. Uh, but he doesn't even give a fuck, dude. And especially when you compare it to Thunderball, which is not necessarily a great James Bond movie, but it's a solid one. Even certain character beats they take in that one, like when he Thunderball, where he tells Domino, like, you know, your brother's dead. It's this really kind of emotional scene, and he's really sort of like, doesn't want to tell her and it, you know there's a part with the watch and all that stuff like yes. it, it's really kind of heartfelt and this is just this big stupid dance scene by the way your brother's dead don't say anything like what the fuck like this is what we give him they, they kill him by throwing a boa constrictor in his car like get the fuck out of here with this it's so stupid and not to mention what they did with the fatima character where in Thunderball, she's she's almost like a counter to James Bond. Where she's perfectly capable. She's a badass. And this, she's like a psychopath. And that's her big character beat. Right, yeah. It's just, it's such a bastardized version. You know, we've talked about cash grabs before on the show where it's like, clearly they made this just to get money. This is that. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's literally just like, we have the rights to do a specific Bond story and we're going to do it again and get Sean Connery. It feels so cheap and slapdash like would you say casey this is the worst bond movie as a, as a bond scholar no it's close like it gets a little bit of points because even though i think this is a very boring movie it's interesting that it exists like i do appreciate that somehow a almost unlicensed bond movie that's just a remake of another bond movie where it's big claim to fame is they got sean connery to come back to it I do think that's interesting, and I totally got why this was a pick and that it's interesting to talk about, even if the movie itself is very dull and lifeless. But I still think that that has more merit to it than, say, Die Another Day. I mean, I suppose it's an interesting curio, I would agree, but just as a movie, like, the only things I can spot like that kind of, like, are... One, I like most of the fight that he has at the spa with Pat Roach, who's, like, a great big stunt guy who's been, like, he was the guy who fought Indiana Jones uh, several times, like, in Raiders in particular. He's the guy in front of the the airplane. Like, their back and forth is a, it's a really solid fight throughout that whole spa, um, until he throws his own piss in Pat Roach's face. Just, like, a weird, dumb note for that fucking scene to end on. Two, I will also say, um, I really like the use of Bernie Casey as Felix Slider. Oh, yeah, he stood out to me uh, quite a bit because for all the talk of like who's the best Bond, I honestly find Felix Leiter fascinating in that they just are constantly recasting him. Bernie Casey is probably my favorite outside of David Hedison, who if you're uh, I'm assuming some of your audience are into sci-fi and horror. Uh, David Hedison was the scientist in the original Fly, and he also played him when he had the fly mask on. That was not a stunt guy. And Jeffrey Wright. Uh, I think that those two are better, but Bernie Casey is probably third place. No, especially I like their back and forth where it feels like him and Bond actually know each other, even though Bernie Casey's clearly several years younger <laughs> than fucking Bond is this point. Just like, oh yeah, we're chums, even though it's just like you could be like my dad's buddy. <laughs> in <laughs> like, fairness... The Felix Leiter and Goldfinger is probably Bond's dad. That's true. It's kind of a reverse at that point. That's very true. How would you say this even compares to, like, a Thunderball to you, Casey? Is that one of your favorites, or do you think this is a not-that-bad remake of that movie, or what? Thunderball is almost my least favorite of the Connery films. I think it's very good. In fact, I watched it after this, and I liked it a little bit better than the last couple times I watched it. Maybe it was just felt refreshing compared to this, but... Honestly, even when this movie is doing what it's supposed to be doing, it feels like an inferior remake of a Bond movie I don't love. It already is starting in a hole and just uh, 
never able to get out of that. Yeah, it does a lot of weird switches, like particularly trading out poker for the fucking video game thing. Oh, what the <laughs> fuck. But no, I, I agree with Casey there. It, it does feel like a remake to a kind of already subpar movie. Like, this almost feels like the Prom Night remake. You know what I mean? Like, it's a terrible movie. They're going to remake it with a terrible movie. Like, what are we doing here? Like, I, I just don't understand. Well, I do understand. Again, it's money. Like, they knew what they were doing. It's money. But every single character that was in Thunderball to this, none of them transfer well, even the main star. Like, it's just, it, nobody gives a fuck. It's so all over the place. And you're telling me, like, dude, look who plays Blofeld in this. Mr. Max von fucking Seedow, and he's barely in the movie? And he's barely in it. That could have been the greatest Blofeld ever. It's Max von Seedow, and they do they do him dirty. Like, eh, who cares? Because they give you fucking um, Largo. Was anybody threatened by Largo in this movie? Like, he's basically asleep the whole fucking movie. Like, I, I it's, it's just such a muted, comatose performance. Like, and I kind of feel that sets the tone. Well, maybe not. He didn't set the tone, but that's sort of the tone of the whole movie. Like, your your hero doesn't give a fuck. Your villain's kind of like, no, I'm here. Like, nobody gives a shit. And, and this movie's just begging its audience to not give a shit, which I think is ultimately the case. Like, if the people who are making this don't fucking care, why should I? Yeah, uh, Klaus Brandauer, who plays Largo, I basically, the whole time, was thinking, this is like if you tried to make a Bond villain out of the third or fourth most important henchman in, like, a Die Hard movie. Yeah, right, 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 right. It's not the, it's not the guy in Die Hard who comes back to life at the end. It's his fucking brother in the sweatsuit. <laughs> like, you know, nobody gives a shit about that guy. But you, if you made that guy Hans Gruber... <laughs> Exactly. You're like, this fucking sucks. That's 100% what it is. And I really want to spotlight poor Kim Basinger, who, I, is, this I is very early in her career, but she looks so lost, and I gotta say, like, Connery Bond has had a lot of problems with how he, once again, treats women in his particular earlier movies, but there's few sequences I find more lecherous than him at the fucking spa where he pretends to be the guy giving her a massage. It's so fucking creepy. No, it's gross. And the thing is, you know, you said, you know, Connery with his bod, but, you know, then, you know, the Barbara Walters thing where it's like, oh, no, Connery just is a shithole to women. Like, he's just, he's a male chauvinist. And it, it, you see it all over in this movie. He, It's terrible. It's terrible. And not only that, you know, because it is sort of classic Bond, real creepy shit that he did to women, especially the Connery Bond. But it's 52-year-old Connery who's like, you know, to however old, 21-year-old Kim Basinger at the time. And there is zero chemistry there. Like, it is just not exist. And it's just unfortunate because as we all know she she can be a very capable actress she can also be a terrible actress but she depends on the material she's given and unfortunately this is just terrible she looks trapped in a way i'm just like i want to get you out of this like this entire movie is like a bond villain scheme that she's been in the middle of just like i want to get her out of this this just seems painful yeah george lazenby to ski in and grab her fuck yeah we'll get you the gotham city 
<laughs> that's true. Yes, that's what she needs. <laughs> that's what she needs to get to. But like, with, there's also the thing of like you mentioned. Oh, hey, it's like the same kind of Connery thing. This whole movie is this weird kind of like it's not like the good old days kind of thing with Bond. That's like so lazy and dumb in this fucking movie. How many times it's just like my former uh, superior here, my predecessor, me M, talking here, um, was so like kind to your antics, but I don't follow your bullshit. In a way, it's like the worst version of the M that we saw on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, just tired of Bond shit in more of like, oh, I'm a police detective, like captain who's tired of your bullshit. You're off the force, Bond. Also, like, I hate the scene with Q as well, where it's just like, oh, you know, Bond days are over. Like, everything's been so different since you've been out of action, Bond. I can't believe it. I hope there's more gratuitous sex and violence this time. It's like, ugh, I hate all of this. It's just turning, like, all the fun things into fucking, like, stupid, like, remember the old days when it was great? No. Fuck off. I love, I hope there's more gratuitous sex and violence in this one. Well, yes, I hope so, too. Ugh. Uh, you know, say what you will about Roger Moore. I don't associate with his movies with gratuitous violence. Or, <laughs> no, either. Or, or horribly um, chauvinistic sort of uh, sex scenes. Like, Roger Moore was more the, like, kind of light sort of James Bond. And I don't mean light as in, like, Sean Connery light. But he was more of the suave, debonair spy. He wasn't like the... Oh, do whatever it takes to get the job done if that means killing random people or slapping women like, no 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 it, it, it's just this bond that we get in this movie is a bond from a bygone era and you know it reeks of it the whole movie it, it's nobody wants to follow this type of character man at this point i mean maybe a lot of people did but i sure as fuck don't no especially at this particular stage where he's so nostalgic about the past in a way it just feels fucking yeah. like, sad right it's like he's like got member berries in his pocket. Like nobody gives a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like nobody cares. Hey, you remember when I defeated Doctor No? Yeah. Remember when I slept with that girl and that she was painted gold? I do. <laughs> uh, this Bond okay. thinks if he votes for Brexit, they'll get more gold ladies. Oh, this Bond 100% voted for Brexit. <laughs> That's very true. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's Quite my true. next letterbox list ranking bonds by which ones voted to leave the eu <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah even like i i mentioned that like roger moore's not my favorite era of bond but at least he had his own like he was like the gentleman spy he was like this the guy where it's just like well you're not as like you know rough and tumble as like some other bonds that i've done around but like you're a charming fella i don't mind being around as opposed to like this scrunting like 50 year old guy just like back in my day <laughs> We did things the right way, as opposed to Roger Moore's just like, oh, you know, this is fine. We can have, like, a martini here, and then I can go punch somebody, uh, but then we can have, like, a nice conversation, and then have sex. Like, that's a lot more interesting to me than this fucking, like, asshole who I can't stand. And it's so weird, too, where, like, Connery at this point in his career, we talked about this when we did a Connery episode, is in a weird stage where it's, like, post-Diamonds Are Forever, during the whole, like, Roger Moore era, he was, like, in a sort of desperate state of his career, kind of, like, taking a few major, like, paychecks and doing stuff like Zardoz, obviously. And then this is definitely him in a weird, like, midlife crisis point of sorts, where he's just like, no, I can still be cool, I can still be Bond, I can still be great. And I think the best thing to come out of this movie is it kind of humbled him from, like, being that kind of dude and turned him eventually into the older statesman Connery that like it or not, at least is more bearable than this fucking movie. <laughs> like, imagine if Connor just, like, kept being this kind of fucking, like, P. 
piece of shit asshole in movies up until his recent passing. It's just like that would have been so much more like depressing to see. Oh, if this movie gives me Last Crusade, it's worth it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, but you know what? Uh, I think it's time we uh, did our final thoughts here on uh, this particular movie. Uh, Casey, big Bond guy, your final thoughts on Never Say Never again. This was the first time I had seen the movie from start to finish within the span of a day compared to just watching bits and pieces on TV over time. I was going in wondering if this would be the moment where I say, okay, I see the appeal of this is the all choice if you were not satisfied with Octopussy. And even then, I think I still prefer Octopussy. It's a bad movie, but I think that there's some interesting bad choices and there's actually some kind of fun performances and set pieces. This doesn't really have anything. It starts off on the worst theme song until Madonna, and it just sets the tone on a boring action sequence, and I just never get into it. Max von Sydow tries his best. The guy who plays the uh, the guy with the fake president's eyes, I'm blanking on his name, forgive me. Uh, Mr. Gavin O'Herlihy, also known as not William Atherton on this podcast. (laughs) Not William Atherton tries his best. Irvin Kushner this put a little more effort into the way the movie looked than you would expect from a movie like this. But then, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. This feels like a lifeless Canon film that just happens to have Sean Connery and happens to have the James Bond trademark on it. And I think it's interesting that it exists, but it is a very boring watch. Adam, your final thoughts. You know, it's funny. On the, on the last film, I said, you know, it, it sometimes makes you wonder of what could have followed. Um, and this one, it, it kind of like, what could have been? There could have been a really fucking cool movie here. They, if they would have just got bits of beholden to, and, and to the iconic Bond and all that, and really done something sort of different with the character. And it been a swan song for the character, because it doesn't matter, because the franchise is still going to keep going, so why not have fun with it? Why not do something different and, and sort of unexpected and they didn't they just regurgitated the same shit you've seen a hundred times to a lesser degree this movie looks like canon filmed at 100 percent. it looks like invasion usa it's it's crap it's just generic action crap uh especially in the 80s this fits right along with all of those canon action movies it's a missed attempt to maybe do something cool but in a way i'm glad it was unsuccessful and sort of critically panned because it, it started to sort of put to bed the iconic uh, sort of stereotype of Bond, the you know sort of woman abusing, drinking, suave version. Uh, this was kind of the last hurrah for that, I think, and and I'm good with it for that. But no, it's terrible. Yeah, it's like those canon films, but it doesn't have any of that like earnest, stupid charm of any of those movies. But we we've talked about the canon films how much we love when they go brazen like an Invasion USA or Death Wish Three. Um, but this is more an example of just like if you had one of those movies. But the producers, instead of being just like a vague idea of what people wanted, they knew what anybody wanted with a James Bond movie and did as much as they could legally do, which is to say, like, follow the formula, but without having any of like the interesting traditions or the charms or really focusing on doing anything that different that would have been compelling. The most interesting thing it does beyond like Thunderball, the the one improvement, I would say, it doesn't have a 30 minute long water water fight sequence at the end that lasts for fucking ever yeah that's it, it does last a long fucking time no instead they're in a cave which is like marginally better but also very monotonous in its own way which is just like it's 
it, it definitely feels like like all of the new interesting stuff they added mostly just ended up um, not being that new or interesting. It just kind of felt like weirdly weird and off-putting. Like we didn't even talk about Rowan Atkinson shows up in this fucking movie as like a comedic relief character. Johnny English origin movie. Yep, Rowan what... Atkinson in this movie walked so John Cleese in World's Not Enough could run. That's true. Unfortunately, that's very true. Uh, especially when he comes in at the very end, just like, Oh, Bond, please come back. M is so distraught. He thinks the world will be destroyed if you don't come back. He's just like, sorry, not coming back. I mean it this time. Fourth like, wall. <laughs> looks right at the camera. Yep, looks right at the camera. Sending off Sean Connery's Bond um, in a worse for weird state, for sure. And now, before we get to our next segment, here is an important message from the ESO crew that we fully endorse. Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. All right, so now it's time for the double redo, where every week Adam and I, and, you know, a guest if they're so inclined to, bring up uh, four movies total, two good ones and two bad ones, uh, two that we would recommend to you all, and then two that we would say you avoid, uh, especially, you know, centered around the topic, which given James Bond is such a massive, huge franchise, there's plenty of options to choose from and uh adam go ahead and start with yours what are your two good bond movies and two bad ones all right so for my one of my good ones you've already brought it up and uh i i mean i can't agree with you more and we've talked off mic about it how thrilling and fun it is and the villain is great and how it's such a breath to the franchise i have casino royale i think casino royale is the perfect representation of bond as sort of the counter agent aspect of him uh he's he's violent he's sort of impulsive he gets the job done but he's still you know again a, a dude he he falls in love he he goes through his whole thing where he wants to quit now because he's found his you know the purpose to his life and ultimately sort of the betrayal that comes from that and how wounded he is because of it, it it's just great daniel craig's greatest especially in his first outing as bond mads milkison is super solid i love that judy dench is back uh it's just it's so so fun i I think casino royale is a perfect action movie um and a really good james bond spy movie and for my second i have which i think is probably the best sean connery james bond i have from russia with love i had not seen this until after i played the actually really good video game that came out based on the movie and then I went back and watched it, and I, I think For Much of Love is just perfect. It's a perfect Sean Connery Bond movie. It is absolutely my favorite of him. It's my favorite representation of him as a character as portrayed by Connery. There's so many iconic moments, iconic lines, everything. It's super thrilling, super fun, super exciting. Um, and then for the bad, I have, uh, as we've talked about, oh, I don't know, uh, repeatedly over the course of the show, Die Another Day. This movie is preposterous on so many levels. It is the worst CGI Bond stuff that you've ever seen. It is the dumbest villain, uh, especially with the the whole plastic surgery idea and all that. I mean, it's so fucking stupid. This movie is fucking terrible. It's just, 
of course this was this was the last Brosnan one because how the fuck do you redeem yourself after this? It's an atrocious, atrocious film. And then uh, for my other one, I have uh, Dalton's first, uh, The Living Daylights, which is not necessarily a terrible film, but it's just kind of boring. There was some cool shit to it, but it's just kind of bland overall. I think Timothy Dalton is a very good James Bond. I, I think he brought a lot of different sort of uh, pathos to the character that we haven't seen before, love it or hate it. At least it was something new. But uh, unfortunately for his first outing, it was it was just kind of a bland affair. I would say with your your picks, I mean, I love Casino Royale. I agree. That was probably my favorite just Bond movie in general, um, especially watching it recently. I forgot just how fucking like awesome just right from like the opening black and white stuff through like the big chase sequence or even uh, I think the uh, fucking Chris Cornell song is very underrated amongst Bond songs. I love that opening sequence in general. And Vesper is one of my favorite examples of like the Bond girl gave us Ava Green, basically, who I think is dope. Um, phenomenal movie. And yeah, From Russia with Love is also my favorite uh, Connery movie. Shout out, of course, to Robert Shaw, Quint himself as one of my favorite Bond villains who doesn't say much and is so intimidating. <laughs> it's so good. Um, and then I agree with like Die Another Day. It's weird. Die Another Day kind of feels like they saw Austin Powers as such a huge thing. And then they decided to kind of lean into the silliness more and more with the Pierce Brosnan ones to the point where, like, Die Another Day feels like if you were making a joke about your dad and then your dad really leaned into the joke to the point where it was no longer funny and it just came off really fucking sad. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what Die Another Day feels like. Though Living Daylights, I will say, of the two Dalton ones, I think is my preferred but then again i'm not a huge fan of either of the dalton movie he's a great example of a very good bond trapped in lesser material they're like not even the worst movies either of them they're just i think f firmly in the middle of the pack for bond for me i'll be honest living daylights was going to be one of my good picks until i saw it was one of your bad picks i love that movie <laughs> I think I'm a sucker for when Bond does two villains, and I really like both Joe Don Baker and the guy who plays Koskoff in this. I think that uh, their their blonde assassin Necros is one of the best like silent henchmen who doesn't have a shtick. He's just a guy with some headphones that are playing some new wave music. Yeah, yeah. the Milkman is awesome. I'll give you that. I like most of the set pieces. There's not a lot of spying in a lot of Bond movies, unless there's From Russia with Love, which is like entirely all in on this is a spy movie. Most of the time it's he walks to a location and then he gets into a fight. And from that fight, he goes to a new location and then there's another fight. This one, there actually is like spying him, trying to figure out some shit. He has to follow a trail of clues until it finally gets him to side with the Taliban, but let's forget about that part. <laughs> he pulls a Rambo 3. I forgot he, he pulls a Rambo, Rambo 3. 3. <laughs> it's nearly dedicated to the Brave Fighting Fighters. <laughs> I do love that movie, though. I It's probably in my top five of the franchise. I think that it's really fun to watch. The only thing that doesn't work for me is how actively antagonistic he is towards the bond girl in that movie in a way where you want her to just bail on him and take her chances just wandering around europe i agreed with every pick except for living daylights yeah casino royale for much would love fucking rule for casino royale i'll even say the die another day to casino royale i'm not certain there's another franchise that has as big a gap between the movie and the one that immediately follows it like in terms of quality that is such a ricochet Oh, well, now it's time for me to do my choices for the double redo. 
Um, and I'll go ahead and start with what we were just talking about, Die Another Day, the worst Pierce Brosnan. I would argue um, his best was actually his first with Goldeneye, which was the first time that uh, director Martin Campbell uh, kind of rebooted the character. Uh, he would later do the same for Casino Royale, which we previously mentioned we love. And if not for that movie, I would this is probably like one of the best examples of especially a Bond starting out so well. I love the way that Pierce Brosnan really gets into that role at this point. It, he feels like he has that kind of suaveness and gentlemanly nature of a more while having the kind of tough attitude that worked for like a Dalton and a Connery in a way that I think just really is stellar and I especially love his whole back and forth with the uh, Sean Bean character uh, who ends up being this villain I just love like that personal stake to the Bond villain in this case and obviously also Judy Dench's M shows up here and uh, Alan Cumming is one of my favorite examples of the trope of a hacker who is sort of like on the sidelines, I think he's one of the better examples of that, probably one of the few good Alan Cumming movies, despite how good a performer he is. It's so good that it's such a bummer that the other Brosnan movies got progressively worse after this point. Uh, but then, on the other side, I have, you know, somebody who I've, you know, downcried a bit during this episode, but I would say uh, the best example of Roger Moore's era is The Spy Who Loved Me, especially revisiting it recently. This is the one where um, it involves a lot of, like, I think the, the most fun examples of the campy Bond elements, uh, with like the submarine car or Jaws, as played by Richard Keel, one of the best of the henchmen. Um, also, Barbara Bach is a great Bond girl, I would say. I think she has that same kind of capability angle uh, as, as some of the Bond girls we've talked about here previously. She's one of the better ones, I would say, for sure. Um, the Carly Simon song is one of the great examples of a... It's great despite the fact that it doesn't quite fit as a Bond theme kind of thing. <laughs> I love um, Nobody Does It Better as a song. Um, I don't know how great it is necessarily as a Bond theme, especially compared to even like Tina Turner's Golden Knight, which is also a great... That, that's a great example of great song, great Bond theme. This is almost like it's a great number one single, that also is happens to be a Bond theme song. But regardless, I think Spy Love Me is definitely, I think, the best example of the silliness of the Moore era, but still done with like a lot of like visual panache and a lot of like stellar set pieces, particularly all the stuff in Egypt, I think is incredible. Some of the best like Bond action set pieces in there for sure. Um, and then for my bad, I have uh, the most recent Bond movie of the Craig era, which I have mixed feelings on the entire Craig era. But uh, I can easily say that of those movies, Spectre is the worst one to me. I think it takes this weird touch of, like, we want to have the same kind of gritty look and style of the Craig era. It looks gorgeous, and still Sam Mendes, who did Skyfall directing and doing some, like, stellar action set pieces at certain points. But it has, like, such low-rent versions of other characters. Like, Leah Sado's character feels like a lesser version of, like, the Tracy Bond character in a lot of ways. And fucking this version of Blofeld you bring back Blofeld for the first time in over like almost 30 years or over 30 years at that point and it Christoph Waltz's thing is all there mainly just to like get continuity into the Bond series which Craig really introduced in a way that just felt like it was trying so hard to catch up with the MCU in a bad way it's a really bad example of trying to like oh I'm the author of your pain even though that makes no sense for like Silva in particular from Skyfall. Like, that makes no fucking sense why you would be the author of his pain. This is so dumb. It, it was such a note where I'm just like, man, I don't know. I, I hope No Time to Die gives Craig a much better send off than a fucking movie could have potentially done. And then I have the other bad pick is the other unofficial Bond movie, which some may argue doesn't count, but it is credited as an adaptation, the first adaptation of Casino Royale that came out in 1967 and was kind of a spoof that had like a very weird stacked cast for the time, like Peter Sellers, Orson Welles, 
Woody Allen's also there. Uh, David Niven. Uh, a bunch of interesting people in that particular cast. Um, the only trouble is it's a two-hour comedy that is missing laughs. It's dire. It is just like the worst example of like a madcap 60s comedy that the entire two-hour runtime is just like, I don't think I laughed like even once. Honestly, it's such like a it's an unfunny comedy that also has the weird audacity of kind of being an adaptation of a fucking Bond movie. It's just it's the worst of like both worlds with that. It is, I would say, my least favorite, even compared to I Never Say Never Again, of any movies technically actually based on a Bond fucking novel. It is pretty disastrous. I have actually never seen that one. Uh so I guess there is technically one Bond movie that I have never seen. I think I started it uh on HBO a year ago and I never got to the end. I didn't have the same reaction to it that you did if uh, it is the same movie I'm thinking of, but I also am a lot more sympathetic to 60s uh, comedy than you are. So it's possible that I would get more on board. It's no, it's a mad, 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 mad world, Casey. It's not. (laughs) Thank you for knowing exactly what I was thinking of. (laughs) It's not that. (laughs) In fairness, I'm often thinking of that movie. (laughs) I'm going to jump in real quick. Goldeneye is is in the top three for me as far as Bond movies. Uh, it's great. I, I love Pierce Brosnan's first outing as Bond. I love the Bond girls in it. I love Alan Cumming. I think uh, Alec Trevelyan is a great foil to Bond. One of my favorite Sean Bean performances. Uh, it's got one of the best Bond themes. Uh, it's just a solid movie from front to back. And plus it helps that I played Biff out of the Nintendo 64 version. Uh, the Spy Who Loved Me is my favorite Roger Moore one. Uh, he's not necessarily my favorite Bond, but it, it is his best outing. I absolutely agree. And I've also, uh, I don't know that I've ever seen from front to back the original Casino Royale, and that is because I didn't know it existed until later on in life, and then once I found out Woody Allen was in it, I sort of stayed away from it, um, just because, you know... Fuck that guy. And um <laughs> just uh yeah, no, nah, I, I was good. I was I'm good on that. And then Spectre, it, it just it felt like they were trying too hard to give Bond fans all the shit that they might have grown up with and loved as far as having Spectre and Blowfield and all the shit. And all of it was done sort of haphazardly. The big reveal that Crystal Faults is actually Blowfield, like who didn't see that coming? And yes, I completely agree. I am the one who designed all of your... Like, fuck off with this. I remember, we were orphans together. You were an orphan. My family took you in and loved you more. Like, get the... Okay. Okay. So that's Blowfield's fucking reason to hate Bond. I mean, you're just bastardizing everything that's come before. It's so stupid. But I will say, Spectre's opening scene with the Day of the Dead thing is still pretty solid. But Arnett, terrible film. There's still other stuff like the airplane chase is also pretty good in that. Dave Batiste is fun as a villain. But when it all ends up with that thing where, to quote Patrick H. Willems, they took the plot twist of Austin Powers' gold member and created it seriously. Oh, fuck, they did. They fucking did. Yeah, they totally did. Yeah, they totally did. But Casey, would you say that's your least favorite of the the Craig era? I think so. Um, I would have said Quantum Solace, but last year when I got the box set and I just marathoned all those movies in a row, I found myself actually not on board with it because it's a movie that doesn't work, but I found it to be a, the most interesting of the missteps of the franchise in that it took a big swing and it happened to miss. This didn't really take a swing. It's one of the more egregious examples of 
there's only 12 characters in the galaxy as one of my friends puts it anytime there's a sudden relationship that uh, between two people that it does not need to be there yeah i don't hate it but i'm very meh on it in a, uh, a po- to a point where i don't think i'm ever going to go back and watch again except maybe one more time before no time to die well casey as the bond person i know you do have some double reduce prepared correct i do and y'all picked most of what I was going to say, but that is good because I can recommend ones that people might not necessarily think of. My recommendations, I will go with Roger Moore's debut, Live and Let Die, which, while we have mentioned, is the start of Bond chasing trends. This is Bond chasing black exploitation. It is still really fun. It's an, very high energy. There's some great 70s New York cinematography, great 70s Caribbean cinematography, high chaos. A very silly, but silly in a way that's very endearing. And what shocked me going through it, watching it last summer, I was thinking maybe in this moment, a Bond black exploitation film is going to feel way too tasteless. It was remarkable how good Yafik Koto was in that he realized I need to go all in and make give a great fucking performance just in order to make this work at all. And it's one of the best performances of a villain in the franchise. It is oddly nuanced in a way that is not there in the script and i love that uh jane seymour again some unfortunate implications with it but that is her big screen debut and she is pretty damn fun in that as well i think the action scenes leading up to everything before the guy exploding is pretty terrific i think that it moves at a great click this is a shocker paul mccartney sometimes writes good songs and as a result this is one of the best bond songs uh, yeah, that is my first recommendation. My other one, again, as Thomas was saying about the Pierce Brosnan movies on a steady decline, the one good uh, one before that decline keeps going is Tomorrow Never Dies, which I know I'd be smart earlier with Bonds fighting Rupert Murdoch, but he's played by Jonathan Price. I, I think that movie actually has kind of aged very well and that is Bond taking on fake news and 24-hour news cycles being used as propaganda in order to offset real world violence and i think that it ends up being very fun i'm a big fan of history in the william randolph hearst spanish american war you provide the pictures i provide the war and this is taking that to an extreme in a way that i'm not gonna say feels realistic but it feels like a thought progression on where news media was in the 1990s and i think that holds up really well i think michelle yo is pretty fun in it and i think that in terms of the brosnan films obviously golden knight reigns supreme but i think that this one tends to be overlooked because people focus on GoldenEye, and I think that it works in its own right. Uh, For my two bad picks, and I will preface this again with, I think I said at the beginning, something along the lines of, I have a hard time outright saying, don't watch this. But I will say that if, if you're sitting down with people and you're showing them Bond movies, I would not show them these ones, especially if you're just looking to have a good time that night. Uh, The first is Roger Moore's second film, The Man with the Golden Gun, which has a pretty fun third act with him going on a duel with Christopher Lee. But before that, it is boring. There is just not a lot of story there, and they have to pat it out with this weird thing with a solar energy crisis that Bond is trying to resolve, and that has to also tie in with the Francisco Scaramanga stuff in a way that feels weird and forced in, and it just does not work. It is pretty much a slog up until the third act, and the third act only happens because the Bond girl in it, Goodnight, is one of the most incompetent characters in any Bond movie, to the point where literally everything she does nearly gets Bond killed, To and you just want to pull your hair out. And the other one is 
uh, Pierce Bronson's The World Is Not Enough. It's not as bad as Die Another Day. I do really like uh, Robert Carlyle in it, and I do like the twin villains. It doesn't work as well as the previous two films. It feels like the franchise is running out of steam and does not quite know what to do in a post-Cold War bond, but also isn't quite ready to go more Jason Bourne-esque with the Daniel Craig films. And it just is kind of floating in the wind, oddly enough. It's a very blah movie, and it has a few moments, but it's just not terribly exciting. Yeah, okay, so to get on to your good picks, Live and Let Die, I don't know how often I've seen it, but I do know the theme, and it is might be the best James Bond theme. Uh, if not, it's definitely uh, in contention in the top five. Uh, it, it's just a fantastic, fantastic theme. I, uh, I, I, God, I can't tell you the last time I've seen it, though. So I'm having a hard time sort of uh, remembering a lot about it. But again, more was never really my bond. And then Tomorrow Never Dies. I hated it when I first saw it. I thought it was such a fucking poor follow-up to Goldeneye. But after going back, you know, within the last couple of years and rewatching all the Brosnan ones, it's easily the second best. I mean, without mm-hmm. question. Uh, and it, Jonathan Price is super fun in it, but Michelle Yeoh fucking slaps in it. Like, she's great. What a great sort of Bond girl she is, because she is the antithesis of sort of the ultra-capable, badass, sort of modern version of a Bond girl. Like, she's fucking fantastic in it. Um, and then The Man with the Golden Gun, I really liked it because of Scaramanga. Like, I thought he was super fun, and I love Christopher Lee and everything. But they, I rewatched that probably within the last couple of years, and it is so hokey and over the top. Um, but still, it's enjoyable. But I get, get what you're saying to where if you're going to show somebody a Bond movie, that would not be the one to lead off with, 100%. And then The World Is Not Enough, I really like that one, too, because of Robert Carlyle and uh, Electra. Forgive me, I, I can't remember her name either. But he's super fun it is renard he's a good villain but again it's just it does feel exactly like how you said it they they kind of don't know what to do moving forward so they're just sort of well maybe let's kind of copy things we've already done before but you know try to update it with sort of technology and things like that like it, it just ultimately falls a little flat but i still think it's not the worst browsing i think they directly go in order of how bad they are his four movies it's charting a slide downward. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. true. I, I definitely agree with that. By the way, Sophie Marceau, this woman who played a yeah, 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 yes, and she, I agree. She's one of the bright spots for for that one. Which I mean, I've I've said before, it's the first one I saw and did not leave the best first impression. Uh, I will say that with Tomorrow Never Dies, I agree with like especially that Michelle Yeoh is very good, and I think I wish if anything there was more Jonathan Price. But also, it's not my favorite Bond movie, but it has one of my favorite Bond sequences which is the whole thing where he's talking with the hitman played by Vincent Schiavelli, who's one of my favorite uh, fucking character actors. Such a stellar scene that, like, works almost isolated. It's just like, oh my god, this is one of the great Bond sequences. I just wish there was just more of, like, either that tone or a lot more, of especially him and Michelle Yeoh just kicking ass. Like, there's... That one, I would agree, it's the only other watchable uh, fucking <laughs> Broston, uh era Bond movie, for sure. Um, I'm so glad somebody has the tenacity to admit that man with the golden gun is a fucking boring movie. That's one of those ones that's so overrated to me. I don't get like, I like Christopher Lee. He's there. And there's like some kind of stuff. I agree. The, the third act, like shootout. I think there's some fun stuff there, but it is so fucking dull before it gets to that third act. And you're right. There is, it's a two hour movie where there's like, there's no story going on. There's only like Hervé Villachez popping around. 
uh, just because he was on fucking Fantasy Island at that point. That's like it, really. But I think Live and Let Die is the second best more Bond. I think there's a lot of really fun set pieces. I agree that Yufet Kojo is super awesome. Also, I don't know which actor this is. I apologize. The guy who plays the dude with like the voodoo paint is like one of my favorite henchmen. Oh yeah, Baron Samity. Uh, I'm forgetting his name. He is still alive and goes to conventions. Last I checked, that dude is phenomenal. I just love like anytime he shows up, or even especially the bit where uh, Moore starts shooting at what looks like him. <laughs> it just dissipates into like paper mache version of him, basically. Um, I, I I think yeah, there's there's a lot of fun there. I, obviously, yeah, the live and let die is another one, kind of like the nobody does it better, where it works so perfectly as like a number one single. I didn't know that was a Bond theme until so late in my life that i was astonished but but yeah let's go ahead and repeat our titles here for everybody out there um go ahead adam start first with like repeat uh, your titles i had for the good casino royale and from russia with love and for the bad i had the living daylights and die another day uh for me i had uh, my two good were golden eye and the spy who loved me and my two bad were specter and casino royale from 1967 and my two good were Live and Let Die and Tomorrow Never Dies. My two bad were Man with the Golden Gun and The World is Not Enough. All right, and before we continue, you fucks, there's seven definitive bonds. I mean, six, arguably, but maybe seven if you count one of them. I, I don't count the guy who played Jimmy Bond and sort of the TV movie that existed, because um, why would you? But um, I want kind of everybody's right off the cuff if you have it if not you might already have it listed because i know i do but i want your ranking of bonds we'll throw it to casey first he's the guest okay. go ahead yes casey. okay uh roger moore is my favorite i do acknowledge the connery films are better but i do find him much more charming and i think that he is more i guess the bond you want to get a beer with but even if the beer is gonna be way overpriced uh then sean connery then daniel craig pierce brosnan Actually, no. I'm going to put Timothy Dahl and Daniel Craig, Pierce Brosnan, and George Lazenby. And so David Niven would be your last, I'm guessing? Oh, yeah, you never seen David. <laughs> so, yeah, David yeah, would be your last. Uh, that's fair. Thomas? Um, I mean, well, I'd probably honestly say, I think just because of the attachment I have to, like, a Casino Royale, um, and even I'm also a fan of Skyfall, I would say Daniel Craig's probably my number one. But then... Right underneath him, I would probably say uh, probably Connery, then probably Brosnan, then hmm, I guess Moore, and then Dalton, and then all the various different Bonds from Casino Royale 1967. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. So, Lazenby that's... is above those guys. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, mine, I would actually go Brosnan, believe it or not, because Brosnan was when I was like a little bit younger and Goldeneye really made an impression on me. And uh, even though his movies suck, I think Brosnan is sort of the perfect mix of the Roger Moore Connery, where he's charming, and but he's also, you know, kind of a badass. Uh, two, I put Craig, then I'd go Connery, and then I'd go Dalton, because I absolutely love Timothy Dalton's and interpretation even though the movies are eh. uh then i go to roger moore then i go lazenby and then i go niven yes so uh i guess those are our rankings as well submit your uh rankings and yeah. double reduce of sorts to us uh, at our various socials we'll uh mention here as we uh, do our exit 
for this particular episode. Um, we want to thank some people, though. We want to thank Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, please make sure uh, to follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water for um, all his great artwork on Twitter. And there's also a link tree there where you can find all his different socials. And also thank you to our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash gedbpod, where every month you get to listen to bonus episodes that we record, whether it be On the Edge of Relevance, where we cover uh, new and upcoming movies, like maybe No Time to Die. If and when that comes out on October 8th, uh, we'll cover it shortly after that point. Um, and then also vote in polls for like topics and movies that we cover. And then also uh, we put out at least one major bonus episode every month. And around the same time this is out, uh, you will be able to listen to our audio commentary released this month where we talked about a little undersung movie you probably haven't heard of uh, called The Dark Knight. Is, is that how you pronounce the title, Adam? I mean, is it? think it's Kniggit. Yeah, that's, how I was, that's what I thought too. Um, so you'll be able to listen to us talk about it and watch along um, as we talk about the great Christopher Nolan film starring Christian Bale and Heath Ledger and Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman, The Dark Kniggit. Uh, but we also have to thank somebody else here, of course. We have to thank our own 007 of a guest here, Mr. Casey Gerard. Casey, thank you for coming on. Where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at Twitter at the Kaser, T H E underscore K A C E R. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I think it's just my name, K Y C E J A R R A R D. Uh, you can support my work by voting in your local elections in November, if you, as long as you're not voting for a Republican. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's me. Yes, and for uh, more of us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at D E D V Pod. Uh, that's where we'll share a bunch of like the episodes of the show and uh, a little trivia factoids and such uh, via tweets of sorts. Um, and uh, you can also send us feedback, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Um, and if you can't support us on the Patreon for just the $1 a month, that's fine. Another way you can help us out is by uh, going to the ESOT Public Store. There'll be a link in the description here where you can uh, buy some merchandise with our logo on it. Yes, you can buy a coffee cup. You can buy a tote bag. You can buy all sorts of stuff with our logo. And that helps out. We get a bit of a kickback from that. So and it would help out if they did what? Buy out a match. Buy out a match. Oh, yes. Yeah. So all the tenacity of never say never again era bond perfect yep. gives so much of a shit i might have done better well i mean it's not a hard barrel yes. to like go over basically uh but for more of our own individual antics you can find me on twitter instagram and letterboxes at not the who's tommy uh where i post musings of all sorts i also do some writing at both my personal blog, marianithomas.wordpress.com, and film-cred.com. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And you can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson, S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And uh, if you want to subscribe to hear more of our auditory antics here, uh, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcasting platforms that you might listen to. Um, if you're listening on ESO, uh, the great ESO network, why not listen to all the other great shows on there? Or also, you can dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed. That's where we have several episodes we did even before we joined ESO. And nothing else, if you can't support the Patreon, if you can't buy the merchandise, the completely a free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around. That gives us more 
visibility out there in the ether. Yeah, and I'm not going to yell at you guys this time because I got <laughs> some people pointed out that I was yelling at you. But hey, can you please do us a, a favor and, and share our stuff, please? You fucks. <laughs> please, sir, I want to share. Please. Shout out, by the way, to Konyahita Mala, who literally tweeted that she was just like, I'm doing this so Adam doesn't yell at me. <laughs> oh, but now, Adam, it's time that we ended this rather long episode of the show with uh, our picking for next week's show. Uh, we do this at the end of every episode. Adam and I each have two good and two bad choices. We switch up on the quality for that. In this case, Adam has two good choices. I have two bad choices for next week's topic. And uh, we've assigned numbers between one and ten for each of our choices. So the other person or a guest in the case of, say, a Casey being here, uh, picks number between 1 and 10, and whichever that is closest to of uh, the two good and two bad choices that ends up being the good and bad choice. Though keep in mind, we do have the Godfather rule in our back pocket, where at some point between now and May of 2022, Adam and I have one veto that we can pull out if we hear a choice, the first choice, we have the option to potentially take the cannoli, uh, which means that we veto that particular choice. It is not going to be the one that we choose. And we decide to uh, go with whatever the other choice is that we have not heard from the other person. So we still have both of those in our pockets. Um, and we may use them while doing our picking for next week. It's time, guys. October's here. We love doing spooky episodes. So it's time to start off the spooky Halloween season episodes. Yeah. And uh, Adam, what are we starting off with? What's our first topic for October? We are starting off with occult films. Uh, so basically anything that involves, you know, a cult or anything loosely based. You know, the, some of the prime examples, uh, classic examples, I would say would be like Wicker Man or things like that. Uh, it's a pretty nifty little subgenre. Yes. And uh, we love covering subgenres on here and also doing some other interesting things we're very excited about the october season and like i said adam has his two good choices i have my two bad so casey please for his two good choices number between one and ten so favorite bond movies are majesty's Your service that's a six one so i will say six all right at number eight i have a movie that was a kind of released in in 2020 as you know the pandemic obviously really hurt it and things like that and also kind of a bad title but if you uh haven't seen it it's so worth it i have the empty man Ooh, okay this was a movie i remember literally watching because i've heard some interesting like little cult rumblings in its own right cult attention to it and i immediately texted adam and said this is an Adam movie. You should watch it. And I watch it, and I'm like, oh, this is definitely my shit. This is yep. an Adam movie, and it 100% is. It is fucking awesome. So, for all that alone, I can't possibly take the cannoli on this one. I will not. I'm very excited to talk about The Empty Man, and recommend everyone else all watch it. I believe it's on HBO Max right now, as it won't record it. It is. Yeah, as of right now. And then uh, at number one, I had another one that we've sort of discussed off mic. Uh, several times, but never really done a show on it. I had uh, Hereditary. Okay, yeah. One that I really love, and I know you mostly love, aside from yeah. some stuff near the end. Yes, Three so. quarters of it, maybe. Yes, yes. So, um, right, stellar. So now, Casey, for my two bad choices, please pick a number between one and ten. Okay, I'm going with ten, which is the number for Spy Who Loved Me, my second favorite. Okay, well, over at number nine, I had one uh, from a controversial filmmaker we've never discussed on the show, but I'd be fascinated to talk about, especially for uh, one that 
I was not a fan of when I first saw it, but has gotten a reappraisal, especially I would say in the last uh, 10 years since it came out or so. I have Rob Zombie's Lords of Salem. Hey, I'm definitely one of the fans of that one. Uh, no ways. Uh, yeah, so therefore you can, uh, yeah, I'm not taking that can only, not going to do it. Not gonna do it. But then on the opposite side of things, over at number three, um, I had one from another interesting visionary filmmaker uh, that kind of came and went, though I know this one has its fans as well. I have Gore Verbinski's A Cure for Wellness. I've not seen that one. I don't hate that movie. I think it got, like, really critically lambasted at the time it came out. I think that one has interesting ideas. Kind of like a lot of Gore Verbinski's movies where, like, I either love them or I have very mixed feelings on them. That's more of a mixed feelings one. Isn't what's his name in that? Um, uh, box office poison. Box office poison. Um, Dane DeHaan. Yeah, there he is. That's him. That's the one. That and also that was I think the last time they gave him like a a big studio movie because <laughs> that bombed horribly and then he's just kind of uh, been fluttering around occasionally in places. But Lords of Salem and The Empty Man, two very interesting movies. We'll have a lot to say about next time. Uh, but. Until that next time, everybody, uh, just know that Double Edge Devil Bill will return. Or will it? I don't know. This might be the last one. Who knows? <laughs> we never know. You know what? We have all the time in the world to figure that out. You and Casey can make a shitty remake of this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never Edge again. <laughs> <laughs> has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.